subject that we want to talk about is style. What I believe is that we can prove that the style is the message. And the big question we will answer is, does the style make a difference? Does God have a preference in style? Or is that just a matter of personal preference? Now, we must realize, I think we need to say right at the bat, that we are not going to agree on everything. What I'm saying is that there are principles that we must agree on. And if we agree on the principles, we may not come up in exactly the same place, but we will not be very far apart. As someone has said, if two of you agree on everything, one of you isn't necessary. But as Florgina and I have been able to travel all over the world, we have found that Christian culture takes over and supersedes any other culture. Bible-believing Christians the world over have similar standards because the style does make a difference and again we're proving what is acceptable unto the Lord I'm not trying to get you to like the kind of music I like I'm not talking about what I like what I'm saying is that there are Bible principles that both of us ought to have no matter what our background is we ought to find out what is acceptable to God we're applying it to the area of music and here I want to give you some technical things. This is going to be the technical section. Don't go to sleep right here, okay? Because I think this is very important as we're talking about, as we talked in the first session about our musical God, we must understand that there are principles then that are laid down even in the musical area that help us to understand what God is like. We have in music what is called the harmonic or the overtone series. The note that I have there on the screen is a low C. It's not the lowest C on the piano, but we call it a low C. If you'll play that note for us. That's, that's the low C that she's playing. Whenever you have a note that sounds like that, you always have partials or harmonics or overtones that are sounding at the same time this note is sounding. For instance, there's always a note which is exactly an octave above that low note. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, one, eight. Those notes are an octave apart. That's why the ratio of the frequencies of those notes is always two to one. No matter where they come, they come high, low, orchestra, voices, no matter where they are, if the notes are an octave apart, if they're that distance apart, the ratio of their frequencies is two to one. And we'll expand on that in just a minute. It's also interesting to me, the book I showed you in the first session called The Music Physician for Times to Come, says that if your voice is rich in overtones, you are providing a benefit to whoever hears you. Even your voice, the way your voice, they, you know, they even have voice prints now, you know that, but if your voice is rich in overtones, you provide a benefit. If your voice is not rich in overtones, you are taking the energy of the person you're talking to down. Don't comment on my voice right now, okay? <clears throat> but they go on and they say, the sound spectrum of the six visible planets, including the Earth, covers eight octaves, almost identical to the human hearing range. I showed you that quote in the, in the first session. The planets are built on the principles of the octave. Because our planets revolve around our sun in octaves. In other words, if you, take, if you go from the sun to Mercury, the first planet, and then go to Venus, each time you go to another one, you go exactly double the distance. From the sun to Mercury is one distance. From Mercury to Venus is double that distance. And you can keep on going all the way through the planets. They are built in octaves. God has even made our planets to revolve around our sun in octaves. 
is a very fascinating science. It's been out for about 15 years now. It's called helioseismology. A study of our sun and the other stars and the sound that the sun gives off and the sound that the planets give off. With their radio telescopes, they tell us that of all the billions of the stars, that no two are alike. Just like snowflakes, no two are alike. No two stars are alike. You can think of the sun as an organ with 10 million pipes. It's a giant organ. It gives off sound. But if we go back to the overtone series, we have the octave, but then there's a note which is exactly a fifth of that second note. One, two, three, four, five, one, five. That's, those notes are a fifth apart. That's why the ratio of their frequencies is always three to two. Again, no matter where it comes, high, low, wherever it comes, if the notes are that distance apart, the ratio of their frequencies is three to two. You see, why are you going into all this technical stuff? I'll show you in just a minute. Because if we go to that low note, that's making 66 vibrations a second. Now the next one up is exactly 132, or double it. If you go over to number four, which is double number two, it's 264, and you can keep on going. I'm only gonna go as far as number six. We could go much further in this series, way up, way up high, but I'm only gonna go as far as number six, and I wanna show you that all these notes that are here are in this note here. You say, how can you show us that? What I'm gonna ask Flora Jean to do is push down the the key for the low C. What she has done by pushing that note down, she has released the damper from the string. She's not hit, let the hammer hit the string, so the string is not vibrating, but it is free to vibrate because the damper is not on it. And then I'm going to ask her to go to these four, four, five, and six, four is middle C, in case you're wondering. I'm going to ask her to play four, five, and six. If you'll listen carefully, you should hear all three of these notes sounding on this one string. Go ahead and do it, honey. That means that all of these notes are in this one string. And what is interesting to me is that if you play the lower note of number four, actually the E and the G, number five and six, are there, yet the C can sound all alone. If you play the middle note, the E, the other two are present, yet the E can sound all alone. If you play the upper note, the other two are present. You literally have three in one. The best illustration of the Trinity I have ever seen anywhere. As a Bible teacher, I've always had to say, there is no good illustration of the Trinity. I just showed you a great one. You know where I found it? In music. You know why? God is musical, and even the way God has made sound, he has given us an illustration of himself. As Romans chapter 1 says, the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things which are made, what? Even his eternal power and... Isn't that interesting? Scripture says that we can know things about God even by the way he has made sound. In studying the ancient Chinese and ancient Chinese music, I was amazed to realize that the ancient Chinese knew that God was a trinity. They didn't find the right trinity, but they knew God was a trinity. And you know how they found that? Because they were much more sensitive to sound than we are, and they knew what I'm showing you right now. Igor Stravinsky, probably the greatest composer of the 20th century. Whether you like his music or not, that's not the point. 
He was a great composer. When I was at the Eastman School of Music, he came and visited a number of times while I was there as a student. And one of the things he said is the more rules I follow in writing my music, the better my music is. In other words, what he's saying in his own way is that God has laid down principles and when I follow the rules, then my music is good. When I don't follow the rules, my music's not worth having. So many folks have the idea, just throw out the rules and write it the way you want to. That's not what Igor Stravinsky said. Because the music itself has a message. And what we're talking about in this session is that the style is the message. I'm going to give you some interesting quotes from different articles. In an article called The Triumph of the Praise Songs, and by the way, not all the praise songs are bad. I'm not saying that. But the overall genre is headed in the wrong direction. It repeats over and over again. They almost use even Bible phrases like a mantra that repeat over and over again with many of them. But this man says, The Triumph of the Praise Songs, American churchgoers no longer sort themselves out by denomination so much as by what? They say, you don't go to a church because of that denomination. You go to that church because of the music they use. In fact, he says, when one chooses a musical what? Style today, one is making a statement about whom one identifies with, what one's values are, and ultimately, who one is. Many years ago, when I said, you tell me the kind of music you like to listen to, and the kind of music you like to perform, and I'll tell you what kind of person you are, People have said, there's no way you can do that. Look who's saying it now. <laughs> he says, the kind of music you have determines what you want to identify with, what your values are, and ultimately who you are. Then he says, the kind of music a church offers increasingly defines the kind of person who will attend because for this generation, music is at the very center of self-understanding. Those are great quotes, folks. And that's not a conservative author. Here's a man named Edward Rothstein, chief music critic for the New York Times, a wonderful Christian paper. In a, in a book called Emblems of Mind, he says, when you play music, you also embrace what? Because a style suggests ways to sit, ways to sing, and ways to feel rhythm. This man has tremendous insight. He says, a style also suggests ways to think. You accept the wrong music and it will affect your thinking. You'll begin thinking the wrong things. A style even defines a musical community, a group with shared notions about music and its purpose. Let's play an example of what we're talking about, okay? I think this will be obvious. I have decided to follow Jesus. Now that style sets the mood, doesn't it? We love that song. You sing, I have decided. You know, this, is, this is great. It's a nice recording. It's such a kind of mood that we would like to have in a church where we would attend. No turning back. No turning back. What changed? The song? The words? The melody? 
the style. The style is what made the difference. We have to recognize that. He even says, a shared style allows for musical communication without misunderstanding, a common sense of what is being said and why. Musical styles effortlessly communicate. All kinds of presuppositions and attitudes. People say to me, you're going on your own presuppositions. I say, yeah, but I believe my presuppositions are biblical. And if my presuppositions are biblical, my conclusions won't be biblical either. But he says, they communicate all kinds of presuppositions and attitudes, matters which may never be explicitly articulated, but which are nonetheless always felt. The style of what tells you that. Let me give you a, what I think is an even stronger example of that, okay? You'll recognize this. from the Messiah. Nice stuff. That one. Again, what changed? The style. Makes all the difference in the world. We have to recognize this. I love the titles these fellows come up with. This one was in USA Weekend. It's called Take Two Tunes and Call Me in the Morning. This man has two MDs. He's a musical doctor and a medical doctor. He has both MDs. He conducts the Honolulu Symphony and the Hong Kong Symphony. He's also a medical doctor. He says some very interesting things. He says very loud music creates an altered state of consciousness akin to what? An alcoholic or drug-induced stupor. Did you hear that? He's saying that rock music is just like drugs and alcohol that can become what? Addictive. Again, I mentioned this before, but when I said years ago that rock music was addictive, a lot of folks said there's no way. Look who's saying it now. <laughs> Here's a man who's a musician and a medical doctor. He says the music can become addictive. Let me show you. say, why are you playing that in church? It really shows it up how bad it is when you play it in church, folks. <laughs> it really does. You may hear it on television, not think it's what you hear it in church, it shows you. And that's a Christian recording I'm playing. This is what is being accepted. You say, well, that's a wild example. No, that's not. That's one of the top music, Christian music groups today I just played for you. One of the top ones. They have sold their records in the millions. In the millions. I'm not exaggerating. You see, the style can become addictive. <laughs> I don't recommend this book to you. Somebody told me about it. Mickey Hart. A book called Drumming at the Edge of Magic. 
Mickey Hart is the drummer for the group called the Grateful Dead. But this man has done a study of drums. He even has an instrument he calls a damaru. It's made from a human skull. He says, I can't even touch it. He got rid of it. But he says some very interesting things in his book. He says the Africans believe that the spirits ride the drum beat down into the body of the dancers who then begin the erratic shaking movements of the possessed. You say, well, why are you using a quote like that? Because the CCM people are using the very same motions. Exactly the same. You watch it. It's frightening. He is into shamanism. I'm not talking about a man who's opposed to it. He believes it's a good thing. And a shaman is an individual who can enter into a trance in order to communicate with the spirit world. And this is what he believes he's doing in his concerts. He believes he's being taken over by other spirits who are doing the music through him. He even has an instrument he calls the beam. The beam is a 10-foot aluminum girder hooked to 12 piano strings tuned to very low pitches fed into a 170,000 watt sound system. Now that may not mean a lot to you, but let me just show you something. Your average home stereo has probably 100 watts. <laughs> the average church sound system probably here we have maybe 1500 watts for this church. You go to a large auditorium, auditorium downtown, they probably have at the most 8000 watts. <laughs> the beam that Mickey Hart has, has 170,000 watts. He says that will put you in a trance very quickly. And he believes that's what he's doing with his music. <laughs> but you say, where do you draw the line? I mean, you've been playing some pretty wild music for us. But my question is, do you draw a line? That's be my first question. And is your line based upon Bible principles? The problem with saying that music is all moral is you're saying there is no line. When you say it's amoral, you say there is no line, anything goes. And this is where the field has gone, the so-called Christian field has gone, that anything goes now. We'll show you that before the day is over, that anything goes. And my suggestion is that our line ought to be as close to God as we can make it. Because the scripture says we are to stay as far away from worldliness as we can. I always remember the illustration, when I talk about this, the illustration that Dr. Bob Jones Sr. gave many years ago. He said a man wanted to hire a coach driver. And he had three men apply for the job. So he took them up on the side of a mountain where the road ran right along by a cliff that dropped off. And he said to the first man, how close can you get to the edge without going off? And the man said, I think I can get within about a foot. He said, I don't want you. He said to the second man, how close can you get? And he said, I think I can get within six inches without going off. He said, I don't want you. He said to the third man, how close can you get? And the man said, I don't know, and I'm not going to find out. I'm going to stay as far away from it as I can. He said, you're hired. <laughs> and I know a whole bunch of folks that are trying to come as close to the world as they possibly can. And they're always the ones that say, where do you draw the line? The problem is, they've got dust, chalk dust on their shoes from staying on the line. <laughs> Neil Postman? Using Ourselves to Death, an excellent book. Very easy reading, by the way. He's mainly going after TV. But he also has some excellent quotes. 
He says, the form in which ideas are expressed affects what those ideas will be. He even goes on and says, it is naive to think that something that has been expressed in one form can be expressed in another without significantly changing its meaning, texture, or value. I think a musical example is worth 10,000 words. Everybody. That's the way it ought to be sung, right? That's the way we'd like to hear it. But there's another version of the Messiah out now that sounds like this. Everybody. Sorry, I can't stand much of that. <laughs> but you see, again, what we're saying is they've taken good words and literally turned them into blasphemy. Because they've changed the meaning, they've changed the texture, and they've changed the value of what was being sung. Isn't that obvious? I think it makes good sense. Then he says, TV, this is Neil Postman again, TV compared to music plays a comparatively small role in the formation of character and taste. Neil Postman teaches at NYU, New York University, one of the most liberal colleges. He's written over 30 books on communication. And he says, parents, you ought to be more concerned about the music that you let your children listen to than you are about TV. And when he says that, he's saying a mouthful. Because we certainly can't recommend TV very highly, can we? USA Weekend says that 80% of the stimuli that reaches our brains comes in through our ears. 80% is what you hear. It controls you very much. <laughs> Here's a book called Rock Music, Culture, Aesthetics, and Sociology by Peter Wick. He wrote a doctoral thesis on this. He said, we respond to the materiality of rock sounds and the rock experience is essentially what? Erotic, sensual. But the Christian people come along and say, no, we can take that, you know, and we can make something good out of it. Ah, how nonsensical can you get? Emblems of Mind, which we quoted before, says pop music fulfills a different function from art music and often has different ambitions because music is communication. Just like language, just like art, there is good language and there's bad language, right? There's good art and there's bad art, no matter what the NEA says. And there's good music and there's bad music because music communicates. And there are archetypal responses. Archetypal responses. You say, what kind of response is that? That's a response to which, something to which you respond even if you had never heard it before. People who went to The Exorcist, the film The Exorcist, many of them came out of the film theater saying they felt like they were being eaten alive. You say, why? Because in the ultrasonics and the infrasonics, the ultrasonics are sounds that are above your hearing range, the infrasonics are sounds that are below your hearing range, they put the sound of screaming cats. If you never heard that before, it would frighten you. It's an archetypal sound. 
And there are archetypal sounds in rock music that are portraying sensuality, eroticism, just like the authors say. But there are some people who come along and say, no, we can take that same sensuality and we can use that for the Lord. Before man gets saved, maybe he ran around with worldly women, caroused around with worldly women. And then he says, when I get saved, now I'll carouse around with Christian women. That's exactly what they're doing, folks. They're taking people who have been in the world and have gotten knowledgeable of the worldly sensual music and they're bringing them over into the Christian realm and using the very same sensual sounds and saying it's Christian. You can't do it. It's archetypal response. This is a fascinating book. It was given to me by a man who said, it's too technical for me. I thought you would enjoy it. I couldn't put it down. It's called The Music of the Bible Revealed by Suzanne Ike Ventura. We tried to see her when we were in Paris a couple of years ago, and she was on vacation. I wanted to take a missionary to talk to her because she's a Jewish woman who lived in France during the Second World War, and when the Nazis came in, her family fled to southern France. And while she was there... She began a study, which she continued all of her life, and she lived to be in her 80s, of what are called the teamim, the little symbols, the small symbols which occur above and below the Hebrew characters in the Bible. She believes they are all musical symbols. And she has done what she calls restituting, reconstructing the music of the Old Testament. And she says the music was always a pure reflection of the words. It never interfered with the words. She says Moses was one brilliant musician. In fact, she believes that they wrote the music at the very same time they wrote the words. She said this is true of the whole Old Testament. And she loved the Old Testament. And she said Moses knew the overtone series that I showed you at the beginning of this lecture. And he built his music on the same principles that we build our music today. The music adds its very own message, she said. She said they use the major scale just like we do. And they use music. In fact, you know, if you're if you very much aware of that in the Old Testament, and it's still true in an Orthodox Jewish synagogue today, before a man can be ordained as a rabbi, or in the Old Testament before he could be ordained as a priest, he had to memorize the Pentateuch. You say, how do they do that? Ms. Ventura says they did it by singing it. In fact, she says even today, they still sing the scriptures. Still do. That's how they memorize it. And I have played some, she has recordings, and I have some of the recordings. I have played the recordings for Jewish scholars and Jewish people, and they say it's absolutely beautiful. Because it not only adds its own message, she says it tells you things that the text doesn't tell you. In fact, she believes, and I'm not sure about this, she believes the music is just as inspired as the text. Because in Genesis 22, it says the music portrays the patriarch's heavy heart. This is where Abraham is taking Isaac up to the altar to sacrifice him. She says the text doesn't tell you he has a heavy heart, but the music does. In fact, she says you can't really understand the text unless you know the music. In Jonah 1, she says, in the first chapter, the text doesn't say it, but the music says we're facing a storm. It's storms coming. She says that the melodies 
even more than the words, indicate that the Pentateuch, the Psalms of David, Isaiah, and so on, were each the work of one author. God inspired it. Media experts come along and they say, does immorality on the screen cause immorality in real life? I mean, does the style really make any difference? Why, we have a style that we use on our television, our television programs. We're just trying to reflect reality, you know? But the same industry insists that television commercials affect what the public buys. Same people. And they spend billions of dollars on it. In fact, at the Super Bowl, a TV ad for the Super Bowl cost $4.6 million for one minute. $4.6 million for one minute ad. That boils down to $77,000 a second. You have that kind of money, don't you? Why do you suppose they put music in the background in so many of those commercials? They like to waste money, right? Now, I talked to a man who makes those commercials not long ago, and he said, the most important element we have in our commercials is the music we use. Ah, it affects you, and the world recognizes it, and we Christians ought to recognize it. On Fox News, Dr. Georgia Whitkin, media brainwashing. And she said, the media people are very much aware of how they influence your thinking and your buying patterns and everything else you do. She said there are four different categories. She called one the third person effect. She said, you think, well, this is for somebody else. This doesn't affect me. She said, it will affect you. <laughs> Once you say it's for somebody else, then it's going to affect you. If you realize they're trying to get you, then you can work against it. You think it's for somebody else, then, then it affects you the most. The second thing she mentioned was what she called the sleeper effect. She said, this is where you say, I hear this, but it doesn't affect me. <laughs> I don't know how many people I've had tell me, young people especially, I can listen to that rock music and it doesn't bother me. <laughs> doesn't affect me. In fact, I had a young fellow just this past summer who after he heard me speak, he said, if CCM is so bad, how come I get a blessing out of it? I said, you need to ask yourself that question. If it's so bad, and it is so bad, why do you get a blessing out of it? <laughs> That's the sleeper effect. <laughs> I can hear it, but it doesn't really affect me. See, it's okay. You know, it may be sensual music, but it doesn't affect me sensually, so it's okay for me to listen to it. Ah, that's the sleeper effect. Then she also talked about the sensual effect. That's the idea that everybody believes this. Parents hear that all the time. You know, people, don't you? Everybody does this. Why, why are you trying to limit me? Everybody does this. Everybody in school, you know. I go to school with Christian kids, and they do it. They listen to rock music. How can you say it's bad? And I'm very much aware. If I go to a Christian school, I tell them, I say, look, I'm very much aware as I'm talking to you and showing you the principles of music that many of you are saying, my home church uses the very music you're saying is wrong. Are you saying my pastor is wrong? Ah. And my illustration is, as many of you know, I came from a charismatic home, Pentecostal home. And when I began studying the scripture, where I started with you today in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, and saw what the Bible said, I had to say, am I going to follow what my parents taught me, what my church back home taught me, or am I going to follow the Word of God? And I made a decision I was going to follow the Word of God, and I say, that's all I'm asking you to do. But the last effect she talks about is the multi-source effect. In other words, if you hear something enough times, it must be true. And that's the problem, folks. 
You listen to the wrong recordings enough times and you're going to say what I'm hearing is true. Maybe when you first hear it, as I played it here in church today and many of you winced when I did, and you first hear it, it bothers you. You listen to it enough times and it's not going to seem bad to you. That's why they play the same ad. You watch on television, they keep playing the same ads over and over again. Sometimes one right after another, the same ad. You say, why do they keep playing that same ad so many times? Because they figure that if you hear it enough times, you're going to say it must be true or they wouldn't be repeating it that many times. That's why the scripture teaches us not to listen to doctrine which is wrong. Don't listen. Don't let it be a part of your life. You ever notice how hearing is important in God's word? Romans 10, 17, faith cometh by and hearing by the word of God. Christ is the word, that which you hear. And as I showed you before, many Greek scholars say even the word logos means sound. That which you hear. John the Baptist is called the voice of one crying out of wilderness. 1 John 1, 1, that which we have heard and seen, he carry unto you. What you hear is tremendously important. Because hearing is mentioned over 1,500 times in the Bible. Anything that God mentions that much must be important. There's no way you can say God doesn't care, doesn't make any difference, I can listen to whatever I want to, it's not going to affect my life. It does make a difference if you really want to prove what is acceptable in the Lord.